we thank the Lord for bringing us successfully through this weekend. And um, I, I pray and trust that everybody's healthy and everybody's happy. Amen. Um, and again, Pastor, thank you for the invitation. It's been my honor and my privilege to share this time with you and with the church. And uh, my prayer is this, is that whatever the Lord has spoken to us must survive this weekend. Amen. It must continue after this. In fact, whatever we shared was just the beginning. Any, any body of information that you receive that blesses you, it's up to you to expand on that. Amen. It's up to you to do your own study, to dig deeper into the word of God, to ask the Lord for greater revelation in whatever area the Lord may have spoken to you. Um, you know, it's not the responsibility of the pastor to constantly uh, feed and, and, and give you when you all own a Bible. Amen. Uh, sometimes we are, our job is to just provoke you to think or to whet your appetite so that you can go after God and search the scriptures for yourself like the Berean believers did in the New Testament. And, um, and I, I pray that for you as a church, you continue to grow. The church does not grow automatically. It grows intentionally. The church only grows when people make a commitment that I don't show up to church by myself. I'm, I'll invite someone else to come with me, a co-worker, you know, a family member, you know, your children's uh, friends who may not, uh, you know, have a, a family church to go to. You know, for me, that's very important because that's how I came into the kingdom. I came into the kingdom because a kid that was one year older than me, I was 11 and he was 12, approached me and said, would you like to go to church with us? And I said, I don't have a way to get there. And he said, I, I spoke to my dad, and my dad said, can, he can come pick you up. And so every single Sunday, I'll get dressed up and wait by the side of the road, waiting for that van, that family van to come. And uh, my parents would say, where are you going? How are you going to get there? And I said, oh, no, no, the, the, the mousetraps are coming to pick me up. And it was such a joy as they'll pick me up and drive me to this little Baptist church. Well, after a while, they, they were an American family. Uh, originally from Louisiana, but they raised their kids in the mission field. Uh, eventually, they had to come back home to the United States. And then I used to have to get up extra early to walk the, about two and a half hours, uh, sometimes more, to get to church. Amen. But I just remember the courtesy that that family did for me because um, the day that I got saved, which is the 19th of February in 1984, at 11 years old, they gave me a Bible. The reason why I remember that date is because they wrote the date in my Bible. And I kept that little Bible for many, many, many years. It's still amongst uh, my library book somewhere at home. And, uh, but they also gave me another Bible uh, that they wrote a note for my mother. And my mom's name is Evelyn. And they said, hey, Evelyn, your son gave his life to the Lord and we want to give you this gift. We pray that it's a blessing to you. I gave that Bible to my mom and she was like, well, you know, she was grateful. Uh, and I started praying for my family members to get saved because at that time nobody else was saved. It took about two years and I remember one time I was at a Boy Scout camp and we ran out of food, you know, because we wanted to stay another day longer. I told them, hey, if I go to my mom's work, I think she can give us some money to buy some food so we can stay one more day. So uh, my scout master allowed me to take the bus to where my mom worked. And when I walked into my mom's office, she was reading that Bible. And there was a look on her face that immediately I knew something had happened. So I said, what is it? She says, Jesus, do you know he's, he's alive? I was like, I've been trying to tell you that for two years. You know, <laughs> and, oh, he's amazing. And then she's showing me all this. And that, that Bible was the testimony 
that, uh, that reached my family. And once my mother got saved, oh my goodness, you want to talk about supernatural growth. Amen. Instantly she became just a powerful intercessor and a prayer warrior. That's when she started taking us to prayer meetings and we started, and, and, and my dad wasn't saved so he would not allow my mom to go to church. We were allowed to go as kids but uh, you'll say to my mom, you can go. So I used to have to listen extra carefully when the preacher preached so I can go back and relate to my mother what I learned in church. That's how I was able to remember sermons and to remember scripture. But all of this began. Eventually my mom got, you know, came into the faith, all my sisters, all my brothers. And for my dad, it took many years after that. It took until I was 20, 28 years old. I was praying for him since I was 11. At 28 years old, I was pastoring in, in Connecticut, actually. And my dad came and heard me preach for the first time. I took an altar call, and he was the first one to answer. Knelt before me, and I led him to the Lord. And before they went back, I put them on the plane back to Africa. He wanted to have water baptism. So I did what pastor did for the two precious ones today. I had the honor of doing that to my own father. So my father is like my spiritual son. Amen. But all of that began when a 12-year-old boy came to me and said one day, would you like to go to church with us? And I said, I don't have a ride. And he said, I talked to my dad, and my dad said, he'll pick you up. Some of us, you know, we, we come from a rough place in Africa, you that were in India, when you were in India, you know, some of you didn't even have a rickshaw in India. Amen. But you're here in the United States, and the Lord has blessed you with beautiful SUVs and cars. Don't, don't come riding to church by yourself. Find somebody you can pick up and bring to church with you. Doesn't take that much. You don't even have to know how to preach. You have a man of God that knows how to present the gospel. Just bring them. We'll take care of the rest. Amen. But you have to have the intention and the heart. And so sometimes with your co-workers, just, just lay that on them. Hey, listen, why don't you come to church with us? Pastor is teaching an amazing series. It will be a blessing to you. You know, what is church? Uh, well, you know what? I'll come pick you up and bring you and, and you'll find out. Amen. Because you never know the domino effect of the little bit of work you do for the kingdom. You know, uh, for many years, when that family came back to the States, I couldn't find them. This was way before social media. This was way before any of that stuff. It took me years and years and years. And in fact, a young minister, his name was Joseph Hammer, that led me to the Lord. That family brought me to church. They never led me to the Lord. They just brought me to church. The young pastor that was preaching is the one that led me to Christ. He's the one who preached the gospel message and led me to Christ. His name was Joseph Hammer. I looked for him for years because I had been in the ministry at that time for a while. I had preached in Zimbabwe. I had preached in other parts of Africa and I had preached all over the United States. And I just wanted him to be blessed by the testament of the fact that an 11-year-old came to your altar when you preached one day many years ago. I just want you to know what he's been doing ever since. So I was able to find, when I was in Bible college, I found Joseph Hammer and I said, Sir, I don't know if you remember me, you probably don't. I was 11 years old and I heard you preach on the 19th of February in 1984 in a little Baptist church. You preached the message of salvation and I gave my life to Jesus. Now my family is serving the Lord, only my dad is left. But I've been serving the Lord in ministry as a children's minister. I started first of all as a children's minister, then I became a youth minister. And now I became, I, I preached to the older youth. <laughs> the gray-haired youth, amen. And so I found him, and I was looking for that family. Eventually found um, in, um, uh, Mr. Malstrup, um, Dennis and Sherry Malstrup. They were in Argentina doing the same thing there that they had done in Zimbabwe. And I just had to reach out to them and say, sir and ma'am, I just want to thank you. Because if you had not given me a ride to the church, I don't know where my family would have been right now. 
my entire family, my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, our lives have changed because you gave me a ride to church. Some of you, I don't know, maybe people are waiting for some powerful ministry to erupt. I don't know any ministry that's more powerful than that. For me and my family, it wasn't miracle signs and wonders that got us into the kingdom. It was one ride to church by a family that cared enough to drive six, seven miles out of the way to go pick up an 11-year-old kid. Amen. So how is the church going to grow? Because bread of life must grow. A healthy church grows. That's just the way it is. I know you live in a city where you get a lot of transients, meaning people that come in on contract and their contracts are finished and then they move on. That's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way to sow. Amen. People come in, you invest in them, and then they go out and God continues to use them where they are. But also within your city, there are people that are there for, you know, permanently that can come to church and be blessed and can be part of your church family and be absolutely supernaturally transformed. Sometimes all it takes is an invitation. That could be your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God. I don't know how many people have been saved in my ministry. I stopped counting many years ago. I don't know how many have been healed. I don't know how many have been delivered. I've stopped counting many, many years ago. But there are a lot of them. But all I can say is this. If we were to go to heaven today, you'll find in the account of that, of that family, everything that I've accomplished in the kingdom is credited to their account. That's what Paul was trying to tell the church in Philippi. He says to the church in Philippi, because you stood with me when I was a nobody, when I was starting up in ministry. That means that anything that accrues in my ministry is credited to your account. That's why you could honestly say, that's why I know that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Because any victory that I score in the kingdom is credited to your account. That's the power of bringing people to Christ. That's why they say that those that, um, that, you know, that lead many to salvation are, are like stars in the heavens. Amen. Today heaven was rejoicing when our wonderful brother and sister were getting baptized. Some of you that are in here, if, you, if you're not baptized yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Amen. Just take that step in obedience and let God then move you into whatever it is that he wants you to do. Amen. And um, today I, I just want to speak for a few, just a few minutes. I'm going to be sitting down soon because I know we've got a, um, a, a full agenda. But very quickly, as, as we've done before, can I get maybe three or four people just share with me what you learned from last night to the night before to et cetera, et cetera. Can I just get some feedback? What has the Lord been saying to you? What has been resonating with your spirit in, so far this weekend? Anybody at all? God loves people. My brother, if that's all you walk out with, it's more than enough. It's more than enough. Amen. That's the, spirit to be, that's the secret to being an intercessor. Why do you pray for people? Because you understand God's love for people and you share in his love for people so you pray for them. Amen. Every calling, every ministry you'll ever have must be rooted in that simple concept that God loves people. Amen. What else? Revival starts with repentance. Amen. Rent your hearts and not your garments. Amen. And that's when the Lord says, then it will come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And the, the concept of repentance is not because of, of, it's just a relational thing, right? Like I said yesterday, if you offend somebody knowingly, it's just good manners to go in to say, please forgive me. I'm sorry. For any parent that's here, you've never disowned your child because they did something wrong, right? You don't disown them. But when they come and say, mom and dad, I'm sorry, it not, nothing changed about your love for them. Nothing changed about who they are, their identity, was not touched by their offense. 
But them coming to you and saying, mom and dad, please forgive me for what I did. It's just a decent thing to do in relationship. It helps them. It heals you, the one who confesses. Amen. So you can never remove repentance from the kingdom of God. Don't do that. Don't do that. I've seen people turn around. I've seen ministers on their floor weeping before the Lord, repenting for things that neglect that they've done in ministry. And God turned them around and them becoming glorious men of God after that. Never remove that message from the message of the gospel. Amen. What else? Our identity in heaven is the one that, uh, that counts. You know, a brother yesterday gave me um, a little rock that he, he had written, um, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. And essentially what it says is, and I'm keeping that rock with me, because it says that in those that, that, that overcome, the Lord will give you a white stone upon which a name is written that nobody knows, but you and God will know. Amen. There's an identity that the Lord cherishes, that he sees you as. You need to walk with him in that identity. And so the, the, the world will put an, an identity on you, you know, sometimes from parents to teachers to, to brothers and sisters. But, but the most important identity you can ever possess is heaven's view of you. Amen. And when you know that you're a child of God, you have to at least explore what in the world does that mean. Don't immediately act like you know. Search in scripture. Because to be a child of God is to, to observe the relationship that exists between Jesus and his father. That's how you know how to relate to daddy. That's how you know how to be a child. By watching Jesus and his relationship with his father. He says, I do nothing except what my father tells me. Amen. He says, my father, I've glorified your name before these, your people. Now glorify me before them. With the glory I had before the world began. That relationship is what is the cue as to how we relate to God. I'll take one more. Anybody else? Amen. As an intercessor groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God. Because all of creation is doing that. That means every, every layer and stratum of the created order has a natural groaning in it that may the sons of God manifest. Amen. May the sons of God manifest. Why? Because when the sons of God are walking in sonship, everything around them is blessed. They become the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Amen. They begin to reflect the nature and the character of God everywhere that they go. So we groan in intercession that, Lord, let the sons of God manifest in the house of God. Amen. And right now, for me, my exhortation before we leave is actually quite simple. And I think I'll take it uh, from, um, let's start from Hebrews chapter 12, please. Thank you, Father. In fact, you know what? We'll start from chapter 11 and read toward the tail end of chapter 11. My point is going to be made in chapter 12. Um, And I'll start and say this. This is talking about these wonderful men and women of faith that are in Scripture. Amen. So uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, who we don't know who he is, uh, he never put his name on the book. Um, you know, he's just, uh, he didn't want to be known. He cared for the information first. So he, he's telling us, what we sometimes call the, 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 the spiritual hall of faith. Amen. Amen. The world is the hall of fame. This is the hall of faith. This is the, uh, him bringing out these members of, of, that have been people of God 
and, and their resumes and talking about it. But here's what he says. And what more shall I say in verse 32? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all these were judges in Israel that did wonderful things for God. Of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war, but foreign armies put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. You know, the tradition says that it's quite possible that Isaiah was put in a log and sawn in half. It says this, um, others suffered mockings and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering through the deserts and the mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, it's a mysterious concept that the writer is saying. So he tells us of all these wonderful people that did tremendous exploits for God. But he said that God deliberately left their story incomplete. God deliberately left their story unfulfilled because it was God's wisdom that apart from you and I, their story would remain incomplete. That only through you and I would their final story and their legacy be sealed. You understand what I mean? So imagine all these people that did amazing things for God, but God's wisdom said, don't complete their story without the last generation. Let their story only be made complete in the final generation. That's why then in chapter 12, it begins by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, essentially what he's saying is this, because all of this wonderful, you name him Abraham's story is incomplete without the last generation. As wonderful as it was, he walked with God, he received a child in old age. He was made a statesman in, in, in a land he did not know. But his story is incomplete. His son Isaac sowed in famine and received a hundredfold in the same year. Was a builder of wells, a digger of wells. An amazing man. But his story is incomplete. His son, Jacob, mislabeled at birth, wrestled through life, wrestled man and God, and prevailed. Had a name change from Jacob to Israel. Was given the honor of being the founding father of 12 tribes that make up the world's most unbreakable nation. Yet his story remained incomplete. The story came from Abraham to, to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. And yet there, there was no final chapter. The Lord says, don't complete the story. Don't complete the legacy yet. Because from there now, here comes Jacob. He has 12 sons. And when he was 12 sons, he's hoping that the promise of God will be fulfilled in his boys. But the first one, Reuben, sinned against his father. 
by getting into his father's bed. You know the story. Simeon and Levi, the second and third, they, they, you know, they, 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 they faltered by, by attacking their neighbors, the Shechemites, and were dispossessed of their inheritance so that the Lord fell on number four, who was Judah. But even though Judah was the one who, through whom the promise was to come, you know, Jacob loved Joseph. So Jacob was about to give the birthright to Joseph. And what does the Lord do? Don't finish the story yet. Send him to captivity. So Jacob was, Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers, pulled out of the pit, and then sold to the Ishmaelites and taken to Egypt. Why? Because the story, the Lord was writing a story that he was not yet about to complete. And it was not going to be complete without the last generation. So while Joseph was away, it was compelled upon Jacob to make Judah the default firstborn so that the line would come through the line of Judah. And then you trace the line of Judah. And that's when you see from Judah, to, from, from Perez to etc., etc. From that line you have Jesse and from that line, from Jesse's line, you know, you, you have David come through. That lineage is still going on, but the story is, in, is still incomplete. Shepherd boy, boy number eight in his father's house, possibly born out of wedlock, for he himself said, I was he conceived in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So when seven of his brothers are invited to be presented before the men of God for the Lord to choose a king, Jesse found it expedient to tell boy number eight, you are not welcome to this party. And yet the Lord wanted to write his story through David. So the Lord picks boy number eight and gives him the rights of which belong to the firstborn. And David becomes uh, you know, an amazing king in Israel. The second king of Israel. After Saul. And then from David, tried to raise his children well. Taught Solomon wisely. That's why the wisdom of Solomon is not the wisdom of Solomon. It's the wisdom of David. Solomon himself tells us in the book of Proverbs chapter 4 that this is what I learned when I sat at my father's feet. So all the Proverbs that we love is not the wisdom of Solomon. It is the wisdom of David that he passed on to his son. But God's story was not yet complete. He says, don't complete his story yet. So in, in the time of Solomon, Solomon starts off well. He does amazingly. Builds the temple. Great reformer. Peace. He expands the borders of Israel beyond anything that even his father had accomplished. And throughout his reign, there's complete peace, peace on the land. The most prosperous golden age of Israel was under Solomon. But the Lord says, don't finish the story yet. And in the end time, you know, in a later time when he was older, he walked away from the ordinance of God, putting judgment on the house of David. And the Lord says, I will remove, you know, I would have removed you from power had I not cut covenant with your father. But because your father is my servant and I made a promise to him, I will keep a light alive in Israel. So there was a split in the kingdom. Ten of the tribes went one way and became the northern kingdoms. Two of the tribes and a part of another third tribe, which is the, uh, the tribes of um, Judah and Benjamin. And uh, part of the Levites, they stayed in the southern kingdom. And now the kingdom is split during the time of Rehoboam. Jeroboam takes over the ten tribes, Rehoboam takes over. But the Lord has still not yet completed the story. And from that time, the story of Israel goes one way, and the story of Judah goes another way. But the Lord was still writing his story. There's a reason why I'm telling you this. Because you have got to understand, you are not just a, you know, just a little person who was born you know, some 30, 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, who just gets to know. You are part of a very long story that God has been writing. And your contribution to this story is as vital as anybody in the story. Because the wisdom of God declared that the story of all these great men and women would remain incomplete, will remain imperfect. 
until you show up and you run your race and you play your part. So Israel was ruled by wicked kings, wicked, Ahab, all those guys, wicked, wicked, wicked kings. So there came a time where the judgment of God came upon the house of Israel and the ten tribes were taken into the Assyrian captivity. 150 years later, Judah refusing to learn from what they saw happen to the northern kingdom. 150 years later, they get taken into Babylon. And it looks like the story is over, but the Lord's hand is still writing. And so, when, when Judah goes into the Babylonian captivity, they stay there for 70 years. And after 70 years, the Lord raises, you know, prophets like Daniel. In fact, before they went there, he raised prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel to warn them that get your act together. There's an outside army that's about to march you into captivity. But they remained in their disobedience, so they were taken into a foreign land. They stayed in a foreign land for 70 years. The temple in Jerusalem has been burnt. A third of the people were put to the edge of the sword. A third, a third of them were burnt, and a third of them were taken into captivity, just as the Lord has spoken through the mouth of the prophets. But God was still writing his story. After 70 years, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9, I understood by the books, you know, the, the, the promise of God to, to Jeremiah that we are supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. So he set his heart to seek, and to, to seek the favor of, of the Lord. And he begins to fast and pray. And as he fasts and prays, we see Daniel chapter 9, that Darius is the king, and we get to Daniel chapter 10, and Cyrus rises up as the king of the Medes and the Persians. And the Lord moves upon the heart of Cyrus, let the Jews go back to their own country and pay their way back. Why? Because God is still writing his story. Every character in this story matters. Look at the genius of God at work. They come back, they try to rebuild. You guys know the story. They try to rebuild. They are attacked by the neighbors that, that write letters to the kings of the Medes and the Persians that these rebellious Jews are back and they're trying to rebuild the temple. If they finish rebuilding this temple, I'm telling you this, it's going to be a disaster because they're going to rebel and they'll refuse to give tribute to the Medes and the Persians. So they, eventually they get so discouraged. When they get discouraged, they came into, back into Judah, you know, with Ezra was part of the team that was helping up, and a young governor in Judah called Zerubbabel. So he began to lay down the foundation of the temple, and the onslaught of, 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 of the antagonistic spirit of the neighbors came. And so they stopped, they quit that project for almost 14 to 16 years. Until the Lord began to raise up other prophets, Zechariah, Haggai. That's where they began to say, why are you guys building your houses? And living well. And the house of God is in shambles. Why did you give up on the project? Well, we got attacked. Well, it's not enough. Why? Because God has not yet finished writing his story. You have to get up and rebuild. Why are you living in beautiful houses and the glory of the Lord is, 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 is just scattered all over them? So they begin to rebuild. Under this, you know, the, the, the encouragement of these mighty prophets. And when, when they rebuild, Ezra begins to read the law again in the newly completed temple. And people see this, those that remember the old temple begin to weep and cry. And that's when he encouraged them. No, 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 no. Today is not a day of crying. Today is a day of joy of rejoicing. Rejoice, eat the fat, drink the sweet, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? Ah, so this is all going on. And they find out at the same time, you've got, um, you know, Nehemiah was out in Artaxerxes. And so they're struggling still. You know, the temple is built, etc. But the walls of the city are still down. And it's moved upon the, you know, the heart of Nehemiah. I need to rebuild the city. We need to make sure that the walls are back up in the city. Because it was a curse to have a city without walls. Comes back in 52 days, the walls are up. What is the Lord doing? Reconstituting. Making sure that he's putting things back in place. Why? Because the story was not yet complete because you had not yet showed up. 
That's what he's saying in Hebrews. That the Lord made it such that their testimony is incomplete without you. You would not finish their story until the end time generation showed up. If you don't know the part you're called to play, if you don't know how important it is, if you don't know how there is an entire entourage in heaven watching and encouraging us to finish this race strong, then we think that church is just about showing up and singing a few songs and preaching a few sermons and going home and doing nothing. No. The story is incomplete without the end time generation. There is so much investment in this generation. It's centuries old investment. It goes over millennia, the level of investment that the, the great cloud of witnesses are sitting in the bleachers in heaven watching the church and saying, come on, take our testimony to the end zone. Why are you quitting now? The race is not over. Because you see, all of those individuals were part of a relay race. The kingdom of God, the race that is talked about by Paul that you know, in, in the New Testament is not an individual race. It's a relay race. How many of you know what a relay race is? What is a relay race? I know India excels in a lot of things, but in this part, this is not where, amen, this is not where we might excel, but a relay race is this, man. I, you know, I had the joy in my, my high school. Um, of, our high school was known for the 4 by 100 because we, we had this unique way of exchanging the baton from one runner to the other. Um, you know, so, so for many people, when you're running a relay race, you've got 100 yards to run. Okay? You have got to finish your 100 yards. Or the other runner is not activated. You cannot stand at the 50-yard mark and throw the baton. You're not allowed to do that. You have to run your stretch with all your might and complete your part. And you complete it by handing it on to another generation. And when that generation takes it, now you can take a break. But they have to run their race. You cannot, God help me, you cannot pass a baton on a race you have not yet completed. You have to run your stretch to the end. That's the relay race that began all the way from Adam. We handed it to Seth. Who handed it to, you know, to, 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 to Lamech, who handed it to Noah, who handed it to, to, you know, from Enoch, to all that entire line. Who they came out and he handed it to Shem, who handed it to Abraham, who handed it to Isaac, who handed it to Jacob, who handed it to, the, you know, uh, to Judah, who kept on running. It went through Perez, it got to T- Jesse, it got to David, who kept on running, handed it over to Solomon, who ran and handed it over to Rohbom, who ran and handed it over to the kings, including Josiah and Hezekiah, who kept on running to the times of Jeconiah and Zedekiah when they were taken into captivity. And in captivity, Daniel takes a hold of that and he passes on to the next generation. And when he runs his race, he's running it complete. And he's saying, son, daughter, now you run. My part is done, but the story is not complete and the race is not yet done. The race is not complete because runner number three passed on to runner number four. His part is done, but the race is still on. Are we okay? So after the rebuilding of the temple, other prophets come up 
and they're running and they're giving the baton to the next until we get the last Old Testament prophet who takes on the baton. His name is, is Malachi. And Malachi is running and he's running and he begins to write about, about the end times. That there's a time that coming, that, that's coming when the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And as he's running, he writes the last verse of the Old Testament. He says, and the Lord says this, he will send once again the spirit of Elijah. We're supposed to reunite the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers lest I smite the earth with a curse and that was the last baton in the old covenant the last word in the old covenant is curse because the Lord says until the hearts of the fathers are united with the sons and the hearts of the sons united to the fathers I will smite the earth with a curse and the baton goes nowhere maybe dropped on the ground because for 400 years apart from the little bit that we found out with the priestly um, uh, you know, uh, house of the Maccabeans we don't know what else happened for 400 years and all we know is this, when the 400 year mark was hit, there was an old, really a wild guy that found the baton. And this wild guy was prophesied by an angel because the angel came to Zechariah and says, listen, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son and you shall name his name Han or Johannes. You shall call him what? God is gracious because he shall usher in a season of grace because the baton, the race is still on. But for 400 years, there are no prophetic writings. For 400 years, we have no scripture. It's okay. The race is not yet over. Maybe it was a timeout. But the race was not yet done. So when this boy, he wasn't raised in the city. He was not sent to private school. He was raised in the wilderness, subsisting on locusts and wild honey. And inside him, the message of the baton began to rise. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is, I am not the Messiah, but I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Make way. The way. Make straight the way of the Lord. He picks on this baton and he's running. How is he dressed? Like a sprinter? No. He's wearing camel's hair. His hair is in locks because it's never been cut. He's got bugs stuck to his beard because he eats locusts and wild honey. Bad combination if you've got, you got a beard. And as he runs, he's looking. He's baptizing and running and looking. And baptizing because he knows who he's supposed to hand the baton to. Baptizing and looking. And then one day, a man who was about six months younger than him, young guy, comes walking and the spirit of the Lord identifies him. So he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What? My race is about to be done. He runs and he hands the baton to Christ. And then he says, I must now decrease and he must now increase. Jesus takes on that baton. What is he preaching? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was a preacher of what is known as the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he goes looking. Who am I going to find? He finds a couple of fishermen. And he says, you guys are joining my race. You are in my relay race. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Bartholomew, you know, Levite, the, the, the text collector. You come on. Judas, you're going mm, to betray me. But you are in the race as well. So he runs with these 12 boys for three and a half years. They are running all over the landscape. They are healing the sick. They are raising the dead. They are breaking the power of the enemy. But Christ, after three and a half years, he then looks and he says, guys, my race, my portion of the race is coming to a close. Lord, it's only been three and a half years. It's been, he says it's been long enough. Why? Because what I was running as an individual, you must now run as a collective. Because the spirit that was locked in me is one must now be found in you as many. Because unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. Right now, the way the race is going to be run, we're going to confuse the devil. Because it's not going to be one superstar runner anymore. 
In the time of Elijah, one runner. In the time of Abraham, one runner. In the time of the sons of Jacob, one runner. That's why these guys' names pop up in the pages of history. Because they were superstars. One man running while everybody watched. But now we're about to confuse the devil. Why? Because I'm going to cause 12 to run at the same time. And they're going to cause 120 to run it shortly after that. And shortly after that, we're going to get 3,000 running. The devil won't know. Who's got the baton? It's now 3,000 running. Shortly after that, it went from 3,000 to 5,000. Born again as the church was born. Baton after baton after baton after baton. We went into the first 200 years of the church. With, they took many of our runners. They threw them into the dens of lions. Where they got eaten up by lions. They pierced them with javelins. And dipped them in tar. And set them on fire to light up the streets of the Roman Empire. But as they were getting killed, they were passing the baton to another runner. Confusing the devil. He didn't know what was happening. Until they said this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because the more we kill them, the more they multiply. Running. That race kept on going. Until the runner that came to you. I don't know how old you were, Pastor, when you got saved. But the runner found you. And he says, start! And so maybe you were young, and you the little that you're 15 years old. And they go, come on, come on, keep going, keep going. And that person came in, whoosh, handed the baton onto you. Maybe they're dead today, maybe they're not alive anymore. But as a 15-year-old, you took that at that camp, you take that baton and you start running. And as you start running, now look at you. You got all these that are gathered around you that you're passing. Your turn, your turn, your turn. Go, 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 go. And as we're running, we're all running. You hear what I'm saying? This story is incomplete without you. So you've got to play your part. You know, I'm tired of Christian passengers that sit and watch others work. Sit around, do nothing, and watch others work. Here's what they said. 15% of the people in church do 85% of the work. Just a bare minority of the people are doing all the work. 15% give all the tithes. They do all the organization. They play all the music. They do all the planning and then 85% somehow have been convinced that you can enter this race and just park and look spiritual and that is good enough. Run! Run and teach your kids how to run. Why? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We, we may still have a distance to run, but you gotta, each generation must complete its race and give a baton fully. After you give the baton, you cheer on the other. Come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. The fire does not have to go on. Here's what I hear a lot of people say. I'm going to sit down, down soon. You know, many people say, oh, you know, you go to camp and you get so excited and then you're going to come back to, to the real world. What's the real world? Please explain that to me. What's the real world? Were well, you not excited about God? Why did you feel the presence of God here? Because you gave him an opportunity to move. It's really that simple. You didn't press him for time. You opened up and said, Lord, until you're done, we're going to be here. So he shows up. This doesn't have to happen once a year. This should be a weekly experience. The fire never needs to go out. Because the race is not over. The Olympic flame, they've kept it going. For goodness knows how many years now. If natural people can keep an Olympic flame going, passing it on from one generation to one city to one country to the other, keeping the flame going, how come we as the church, we allow the flame to go out and we allow people to drop the baton and quit church and then get lazy and do nothing? No, 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 no. Each one of you that is here is a runner. I don't know how long your stretch is. 
I've been in the ministry now 23 years. I don't know how long I have. I don't know if I'll ever get another opportunity to stand before you to preach. There are certain things that are guaranteed to me, but that is not one of those things. I don't know if there are more years behind me than there are in front of me. I'm 45 years old. But all I know is this. With each second that the clock is running, the bleachers of heaven are crowded with people who are invested in our running this race successfully. We got Sarah in the bleachers saying, daughter, run. Daughter, run. I ran on a, on a barren womb for years. But I kept trusting and I kept running. You cannot quit now. There's Ruth the Moabitess that says, I was from a line that was born out of incest. I was not supposed to be in the bleachers. But the Lord graced me to run this race. What is your excuse? You're a Hindu. I was born out of incest. But look at me now. I'm in the line of Christ. You've got to run. Rahab the harlot will say the same thing. Say, I came from a lifestyle I cannot even explain to you. But I ran my race. What's your excuse? Others will say I was rejected. Oh, you think you know what rejection is? I was rejected by my own father is what David will say. He invited all my other brothers. I was the only one not allowed to come. Yet I was the one upon whom the mantle of leadership was supposed to go upon. So you tell me please about your rejection. Run, Molly. Run, Molly. Run. Run. The race is on. You've got to run. You've got to run. And then you've got to know this. Is that every step you take is consequential. Every conquest you have is consequential. It is completing the story of these mighty men and women. That have so blessed us with their story. We preach about their story. But they're all sitting there. Knowing that none of their stories are complete. Until we play our part. Until we complete this race. No laziness anymore. Run strong. What are we doing when we pray? Living prayer, we are running. It's part of the race. It involves prayer. What are we doing when we're interceding? We're running. What are we doing when we're witnessing? We're running. What are we doing when we worship? We are running. We are running. Are you tired? Of course you're tired. There's, listen, if you ever find yourself fatigued, know this. You're not the only one. We're all tired. We all have stuff to do. But if there's any man or woman running, it's because they are determined to keep on running. That's why I'm saying when you leave here, you don't lose momentum. You keep on running. You keep on trusting. You keep on growing in faith. This race is not over until you are no longer here. Uh, finish your part. If the, the Lord should call you to glory, go and rejoice in the bleachers. Go and join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the bleachers of heaven, in the stands in heaven, in the stadium of heaven, and look at the generation that remains and cheer them on. Here's what happens. Here's what you find. When Christ died, they say that he was pierced on the side and blood and water came out. Blood and water, for any of the ladies that will know, is, those are elements of a birth. Amen. Just as the bride of Adam was taken from his rib, from his side, the bride of Christ was extracted from his side. And anybody that understands birth is that if a child comes out feet first, what, is, what do they call that? Breach. And what does it do? It increases the danger of that child not making it and also harming the mother. It's not the usual. So typically, how does a child come out? They first turn, and then they come out head first. That's why out of the womb, out of the tomb, Christ came out as the head. Then the apostolic as the shoulders. Then all the New Testament, it was the entire torso of the body coming out. What comes out last? 
The, the feet. What is the significance of the feet? The significance of the feet right now is this. Everything, I'm 255 pounds. All 255 pounds of me right now is being supported by my feet. The feet hold up the whole history. The end time, the generation that comes last must uphold the entire story from the head to the shoulders to the torso to the limbs. That's why the end time generation is this, you know, the Lord has saved his best for last. For some of us, we think, I wish I was born in another era. No, 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 no. This generation that's alive today, should this be the last generation before the Lord comes? And it's very likely. Then you and I are the fifth generation. You know what that means? It means that the whole history, we've got to uphold the whole history. And we've got to move that entire history past the finish line. Run. I'm tired. Run. I'm discouraged. Run. God is not answering my prayer. Run. They might not renew my visa. Run. Keep on running. Keep on running. Keep on serving God. Keep on loving him. Keep on worshiping him. Keep on witnessing. Run. 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 Run all through the city where your church is. Run. Walk the streets. Do the part that you're supposed to do. What if you get exhausted? Well, Christ got exhausted too. That's why he slept on the boat because he was tired. Keep on running. When does a race stop? Either when you're harvested to glory or when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Do this not just for you, but you teach your kids as well. What if you stumble and fall? Get up. Why? A righteous man is not a man that never falls. The Bible says a righteous man what? Falls seven times. But what does he do? He gets up each time. Your ability to get up after you've fallen is what marks you as righteous in God's economy. What else do we do? You know, there's a race that I love to watch because the runners were running and one of the runners stumbled and everybody ran around him. But the person that was leading stopped, came back and helped to pick up this runner and began to run again and still was able to win the race. What is that? We are that type of, of, of a relay that if any one of us stumbles, we pick him up. And if they're hobbling, we will run with them. You know, one of the stories that I like is this. Again, it was one of the sprinters at an Olympic right olympic game he's he was slated to win the olympics but as he was running he pulled his hamstring badly and so he's crying and he's screaming like this but his father went and said finish the race don't stop i, I know you're hurt you was there's no way he was going to win but the father came, an old man came and grabbed a hold of his son and said, we don't quit halfway. And they jogged very slowly after every runner had gone through. And they still finished across. The, because if you start the race, you finish it. Those were the rules of the house. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Because the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the mighty, but to him that endures until the end. So run. So stand, please. Let's all stand. What do I do with the fire I got this weekend? Keep the fire alive. How? Part of the responsibility of the priest was to make sure that the oil in the lamp never dries out. And to make sure that the flame was always tweaked so that the flame can carry on. One of the sins of Eli was that in his time the lamp in the holy place went out. Keep the fire alive. 
how fan the flame with prayer. Prayer is not always fun. But when it's done consistently, it becomes a self-sustaining fire. Worship is not always fun. But when it's done sufficiently, it becomes a self-reinforcing, self-perpetuating flame. Giving is the same way. For some of us, when pastor was talking about giving right here, there's some people you've been to church the whole time. In fact, let me speak prophetically. There's some people right now that your struggle that is taking place is directly tied to your giving. You have not been consistent in giving. I'm just telling you how I feel. And I think I'm right. So what am I saying? Why are you quitting? You used to be a giver. You used to be a consistent tither. Then what happened? Oh, I listened to this one other YouTube video that said the tithe is no longer... Ah, whatever, man. The tithe was actually inferior because it asked for 10%. In the New Testament, the Lord wants everything. So give. Why did you quit? For some of you, you used to have healthy spiritual habits. Then you just let them fall by the wayside. And now that freshness you used to feel in your heart, you don't feel anymore. Why did you quit? You know exactly what you need to do to regain the freshness. You have a place in your house for a TV, a place in your house for a computer. You have a living room, a place for you to sit. Have a place in your house when you meet with God. Have a part that's just for prayer. Why? That's where you go nurse the flame. That's where the runner goes to get energized. That's that's your Gatorade. Amen. That's why you're going to get filled up and filled up so that you can carry on running. If we never meet again, I just want to know that you ran your race all the way to the end. That's all I need to know. So that when we sit at the campfire of heaven, I want to hear about the valleys and the mountains you had to run through. But please don't quit on God. And if any of our friends in here begin to stumble, don't ignore them and wait for them to get their act together. You go and you visit them and you tell them, you got to get back. We need you back. Please don't quit. I'm glad you guys showed up at camp because it, it, showing up to camp is more than just about you. Some other people were blessed here because of the atmosphere that your worship created. So don't always look at what I'm going to get out of it. Sometimes when you worship with others, someone else got really blessed. Somebody's child got the baptism of the Holy Spirit because, the, the, because you were here. You helped create the atmosphere where God could speak clearly and where God could move. Don't always think about what about me and what do I get. The race I'm talking about was run by selfless individuals. They only cared about God's agenda for the time. Amen. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning let's sing it again I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow 